Ephesians chapter 4. Um, this series that we've been looking at has most of the messages that we've, that we've looked at. Um, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but most of them have kind of defied the average mentality about the local church. Meaning that for most people, when they're looking for a church, they're thinking, what's in it for me? And yet when you read about the church, you read about the role of a biblical church member, you realize that our question really ought to be, how can I contribute? It's really not as... Now, are there benefits to be in a local church? Absolutely there are. But our mindset, our mentality from the scripture is not, what can I get, but how can I give? And I believe that the more we contribute, the more we give, that we get as we contribute... And this morning, then, we looked at the responsibility we all have to prioritize unity from these verses. And I want to just review that, and then we'll get into some new thoughts, really maybe just some added thoughts to this. Ephesians chapter 4, let's actually begin reading in Ephesians 3, verse 21, and go into Ephesians 4. It says, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end, Amen. That's a pretty lofty goal, isn't it? God's glory throughout all the ages. Verse 4, I therefore, knowing that's the goal, knowing that's our calling, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This morning we looked at why it matters so much that we ought to strive for unity. And the first thought was this, that Jesus Christ died for unity. He literally died so that Jews and Gentiles and all colors, all creeds, all languages, all, all uh, eras, all continents, whoever it is, nations, uh, that everybody could be unified in Jesus Christ. And that we could be brought into Jesus Christ and saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. He died so that we could present a picture of unity to the world. Because that's, I mean, that's the benefit we get from his death. That we are unified with him and we're unified with other believers in him. But also the second reason we looked at this morning, so Christ died for unity. But second was that Paul risked his life for unity. He was willing to lock arms with a man from Ephesus in Jerusalem and they threw him in prison for it, falsely accused him of taking a Gentile into the temple and he was in prison for it. And you know, I believe that Paul wasn't, didn't regret that decision. He was willing to embrace Gentiles to let other people know that unity means a lot to God and he was willing to walk that walk. The third reason we looked at this morning is that we are called to it. We have a, we are called to a vocation a a calling and we must walk worthy of the calling our calling in Jesus Christ what we have received from Christ the 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 scale is tipped big time this way and if we are going to do justice by living out our calling then we must strive for unity so that other people say okay they I can see that they and Jesus know each other there are too many Christians that receive the benefits of salvation but don't live in a way that matches their salvation. And when people look at their lives, they say, I would never put those two together. 
And what Paul is saying is we ought to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. So Christ died for unity, Paul risked his life for unity, and we are called to unity. It never happens by accident. Unity is something we must fight for. And tonight's just a continuation of this morning, and I'd like to add some thoughts and then get into some application as well. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. As I mentioned this morning, our biggest threat as a church is not persecution. Persecution actually has a way of multiplying the gospel effect. You read the book of Acts and you find out that when persecution really bore down on that church at Jerusalem, they were, they were forced to spread and in spreading or dispersing the gospel spread throughout the regions, throughout the nations. Uh, persecution, if, if we are true disciples, persecution... Now, if we're not true disciples, persecution might take us down. But if we are genuine disciples, persecution actually mul- tends to multiply. God blesses when we're under persecution. And I really believe our biggest threat is not from the outside. I believe that our biggest threat as a church, as a New Testament church, is division from within. Our biggest problem is not the government. Our biggest problem is not the sin of our culture. Our biggest problem is us, okay? And I want you to get involved in this, okay? I want you to look at the person next to you and and say this to them. Are you ready? You are the problem. Okay, there you go, okay? Now, go ahead and say it to the person on the other side of you. You are the problem, right? Okay, now take your finger... Yeah, now take your finger and do this, okay? This little light of my, no, okay? Ready? Do this. Now say this, ready? I am the problem, okay? See, the truth is, our biggest problem is not our culture. Our biggest problem is not our government. Our biggest problem is not persecution. Our biggest problem, the greatest threat to the unity of Eastside Baptist Church is you and me. And if you're human, you might be the problem, See, pastors can be the problem. Pastors can cause division. Deacons can certainly, always, no, deacons certainly can be the, not really. We have amazing deacons, and I'm so thankful for them. And we're not a deacon-run church. We have deacons that serve, and I'm thankful for that. Um, They help me in so many ways, and they make a lot of important decisions. But deacons could be the problem. Staff members can be the problem. Brother Sam is not here to defend himself, so I can say that tonight. Uh, Judy, uh, yeah, she's, uh, Judy, we could all be the problem. Any of us could be the problem. Those serving in positions of prominence can be the problem. Just because somebody stands on the platform and sings uh, doesn't mean that they, are, that they are exempt from being the issue when it comes to church unity. New members can be the problem. Old members can be the problem. Anyone can cause division. And by the way, young people, uh, I don't know that you realize how much or how important you are to the unity of Eastside Baptist Church. I can't tell you how often I have seen churches that have problems of unity that started right here in the youth group with young people. And because young people are divided, then their parents get on board and their parents are on you know, their, their, young, their, their child's side and it causes a rift in a family. And I'm telling you that, that even young people, even young people in a youth group that shouldn't have all of that influence, I'm telling you, you have more influence than you realize. This is a very important message for you to hear because Eastside Baptist Church right now might be depending on your willingness to be united with the the young people in our youth group. Uh, You have a lot more influence than you realize. 
Anyone can cause division. And this shouldn't be, should not be surprising. The Bible's full of interpersonal conflict. It always has been. I mean, Cain and Abel from the very, I mean, almost the very beginning. Well, really, Adam and Eve, they were already arguing, arguing over whose fault it was. Uh, from the moment they sinned, and then Cain and Abel, and I, I think about Saul and David. I mean, what a shame that King Saul, who should have uh, brought glory to God by leading the nation of Israel, was chasing David around the hillside for seven years. Uh, the disciples had interpersonal conflicts. Paul and Barnabas, the person writing this letter, Paul and Barnabas had to split ways because they had a disagreement. Uh, interpersonal conflicts, division, it's a part of life because we're human. I, I think about even, let's just turn over maybe one page to the right, Philippians chapter 4, um, and just want to look at one example of, of this, this kind of conflicts that can happen in a local church. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, um, here's Paul again writing from prison, and he says, therefore, verse 1, therefore, my brethren, Dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, can you imagine then, uh, you get a letter as a church. The church at Philippi, they get a letter, and they open the letter, and the pastor stands up and says, okay, we're going to read the letter, and it's all really good. The church at Philippi was an outstanding church. You get to this part in the letter, and here's Paul, and he says in, in verse 1 again, therefore, my dearly, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. And everyone's looking at each other like, oh, we're his dearly beloved. Isn't that nice? And then he says, I beseech Euodius, and beseech Sintichi that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Can you imagine the gasps from these two, I'm assuming these two women, that just got called out by the Apostle Paul? I mean, that would kind of throw a damper on your excitement for Paul's letter, wouldn't it? He talks about you, I mean, for eternity. These two poor people are... are are in, in, the, in the Bible known as people who can't get along. And here's Paul having to beg them to knock it off. And we don't even know the problem, but we know the answer. What he says is this, be of the same mind in the Lord. And, and you need to, what he's saying is, you need to stop having your mind and your thoughts and your opinions and, and doing the things that you want and you need to stop having your mind and your thoughts and your opinions and doing things that you want and you both need to start thinking like Jesus. And if, see, here's the thing. It's kind of like if we had uh, 50 pianos in this room and I went and I tuned a one piano to the same tuning fork and then went to with this a different tuning fork fork to the different piano and did that by the end of it if we had 50 different tuning forks and 50 different pianos we would have a mess if we tried to play them together but if you take the same tuning fork and go to piano number one and tune it to that piano that that fork then take it to the next one and the next one and the next one um, all those pianos would be tuned the same because they've all had the same standard of tuning 
And in some ways, that's exactly what Paul is saying. If we want to be unified as a church, then we need to be of the same mind. And he just got done talking about in Philippians 2. The mind that we all need to tune our minds to is Jesus Christ. Listen, if you would tune your mind to Jesus Christ, and you would tune your mind to Jesus Christ, and you and all of us and me would be, have the same mind, the mind of Jesus Christ, can you imagine how few the divisions would be? You say, well, what does the mind of Christ look like? Look at Philippians 2. If there, be any, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, chapter 2, verse 1, if any bowels uh, and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He starts talking about the mind of Christ. And look at the words he uses just in verse 2. Here is the mind of Christ, that you love each other. Here's the mind of Christ, that you operate in one accord, that you're going the same direction. Here's the mind of Christ, that you have one mind, that you think the same, that you have the same priorities, that you're moving in the same direction. Verse 3, let nothing be done. Here's the mind of Christ. Let nothing be done through strife. Uh, Here's what you do if you have the mind of Christ. You avoid strife at all costs. You know, some of us are really comfortable with confrontation. And, And I'm not saying that you should never confront especially if you have a position of influence or you have a position of authority or you think that you could have it be a help to somebody, but you should never just confront because you see something you don't like, especially if you're not doing it out of a heart of love. Confrontation should always be born out of a heart of love. And we ought to be careful not to just be confrontational people if we don't truly have a motivation of love for the person that we're talking to. He says, avoid strife at all costs. Verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Vainglory is pride. He says, but in lowliness of mind, he says, have a lowly or or humble mind, he says, let each esteem other better than themselves. Uh, Lift up others instead of yourself. This is the mind of Christ. Verse 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. What you ought to do, if you have the mind of Christ, you will live looking to meet the needs of other people. That's the mind of Christ. Verse 5, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he says, this is the mind of Christ. What else does he say about the mind of Christ? Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You know what that means? That, that, it's, that, that essentially means this. When it says robbery, it's another word, another idea for the word robbery is to snatch at something. And he was saying that when it came down to it, Jesus Christ had a position next to the Father. But when his Father said, I want you to go to earth and I want you to live and be humble and die on a cross for mankind, Jesus didn't snatch onto the throne, hold onto the throne and say, I'm not giving up my position. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he said he didn't look at his position and say, I'm not giving this up. He was willing to let go of his position. The mind of Christ means that you are willing to to serve no matter if you have a position or not. You're willing to serve and and, and without being recognized even. Verse 7, he says, but made himself of no reputation. He wasn't worried about recognition. Uh, He says, and took upon him the form of a servant. If you want the mind of Christ, you ought to be willing to serve. And there ought to be, men, when we're training our our young men uh, to have a mind of a servant on Sunday mornings, men's prayer meeting, there ought not be a, a, a few men 
taking down tables and moving chairs while a group of young men just kind of watch them. No, our sons ought to be right in the middle of it. Let's train them to have the mind of a servant. That's the mind of Christ. He was willing to serve. Look at verse 8. And he being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. You want the mind of Christ? Be humble. And became obedient unto death. He was willing to give up his personal rights for the good of other people. And it says, even the death of the cross, he was willing to die for self. That's the mind of Christ. Those are high aspirations, isn't it? I mean, that's our goal. But listen, if we are all striving for that goal, if we're all striving toward his mind, then we will be of the same mind. Our standard ought to be Philippians chapter 2. If you want the mind of Christ and I want the mind of Christ and we want unity, we ought to read Philippians 2. And in every way that we can, start applying the mind of Christ in our lives. So what does this mean? Well, it's like we talked about this morning. The things worth fighting for are greater than the things that we find ourselves fighting over. There's a bigger picture. There's something greater out there. We tend to fight over the small things. And yet we have something worth fighting for. Jesus saw the cross and that's what he decided to give himself to. He lived for it. He knew God's glory was at stake. He knew that our salvation What would not happen unless he chose to be humble and follow his father. He pursued the things worth fighting for. So therefore, if we want to be good church members, it's the responsibility of every believer in the church to fight for unity rather than fighting over lesser things. So how do we do that? Well, I'd like to revisit then the verses from this morning Maybe from a different angle or just look at principles that are still here um, and help us understand. Uh, Unity, number one, from our verses, chapter 4, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Unity starts with love. Unity starts with love. In verse 2 he says, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love. And you say, well, love is the last thing listed. But I think we all know that love is the root of meekness. Love is the root of of humility love is the root of forgiveness in other words those other things will not happen unless you strive to love like Jesus loves see the trait that you should be known for as a church member that I should be known for as a church member is biblical love it's not your sharpness it's it's not your leadership It's not your intelligence, it's not your talents, it's not your humor. And some of you have great humor. It's not your sarcasm. And some of you are very sarcastic. And and it's okay, I mean, in balance it's okay. But that's not what you ought to be known for. It shouldn't be your talent, it shouldn't be your personality. No, what you should be known for is love. I mean, it's our our theme verse, John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you that ye also love one another. By this, he said, shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. This you can have everything else, but if you don't have love, you're missing the one thing that sets you apart as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we may, I mean, listen, if we didn't have a building, if we didn't have any programs, if we didn't even have a place to meet, we were just meeting house to house, if all we were was a church, but we had the love of Jesus Christ, then people would know there's something different about us. Some churches hang their hat on the big things. 
I, I, want, I want more people to come to Eastside. I want to reach people. I, want, I, I would like more people, more numbers. I mean, I'm not a numbers person, but if numbers are coming, then there's more opportunities for people to get saved. So it's not just, you know, it's not about ego. I want people to be reached, and I want people to grow, and I want people to uh, have strong families. Um, but I don't want to hang my hat on a large church. I don't want to hang my hat on good preaching. We ought to have good preaching. And, and we, even when I'm not, listen, when I'm not here, I'm thankful for the good preaching that we get. I'm thankful for Brother Chad and Brother Jeremy and Brother John Spillman and, and Mark Griebel and Jacob and Samuel. And these guys that fill the pulpit. Mark Ledoux, that, these guys that can teach and preach and handle the word. And, and many of you are doing that in Sunday school classes. I'm not just talking about the pulpit. Um, but we can't hang our hat on good preaching and teaching. If we do that and we don't have love, then people won't really know we're disciples. Organization, that's great. But if we don't have love... Nice facilities. We have nice facilities, and I'm thankful. But listen, if, 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 we, were, if we had to choose between a, a nice building and being a real church that people look at and say they are real disciples, uh, listen, we ought to say, you know what, we're going to choose to be real disciples. We're going to choose to love. Great programs? No, it's about love. We should have those things. I hope we do, but if we're known for those rather than love, then we're not walking worthy of our calling. The world will know who we are by love. Love should be the identifying mark in every relationship that we have. And I'm thankful for those that, that prove their love. I'm thankful for the way that church members love each other. And, and I, I won't go into examples, even just recently, people that are dealing with loss and, and people that are just going out of their way to, be, to love them, to just take care of people. I, I'm thankful that it works. And, but honestly, you know, it would be easier to be known by those other marks. It'd be easier to be known by great music. It would be easier to be known by energetic services and outreach and well-developed children's ministries. Those are easier to make happen than genuine biblical love. Love is hard because it's not a one-time thing. It happens daily. Think about that. It'd be easier to have a moment of heroism than to live a life of love. I mean, let's say that you're walking down the road with your wife and men and a car jumps the sidewalk and... What are you going to do in that moment? You're not going to run away screaming. Hopefully you don't run away screaming. No, you're going to do, you're going to push her out of the way and put yourself in harm's way. I think most every husband would do that. I hope, I think. But that would make, that would make if I did it, it'd make me a hero. It'd make you a hero. And that's amazing. But you know, that's easier than just living a life of love. I mean, to sacrifice yourself like that, that's easier than every day waking up and with the mind of Christ, loving people that are sometimes unlovable. Uh, sometimes we, we tend to live from big moment to big moment, but we prove ourselves in the arena of love. And I'm thankful, they're biblical church members, listen, I'm thankful for the ones that are show up at the big events and that, that show up when we need it the most, but biblical church members aren't the ones who come through during the big events. Biblical church members are those who prove themselves on a daily and weekly basis with love. I mean, this is even Paul told the church at Ephesus in verse chapter 1, he said, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. What stood out to Paul about this church was their love. And don't forget, it's talking about the love for saints. The Bible definition of saints doesn't mean a perfect person. 
And, and sometimes, you know, there's certain denominations will, will, will get, grant someone sainthood as if they're, you know, a perfect or above reproach. No, a saint is somebody who's just been saved by God's grace. But they're still sinners. And if you're saved, you're a saint, but it doesn't mean you're perfect. And what Paul is saying is you, if you can still choose to love sinners who aren't perfect, then you will be marked by that, and that will set you apart as a disciple, and it will make you a genuine, true New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes you have to choose to love the people that annoy you. You have to choose to love the people that hurt you. You have to choose to love the people that aren't anything like you. This morning we looked at the, the word forbear, and it essentially means to cover, to overlook, and as if there is a flaw, like if there's a flaw in the carpet, and you take your jacket and you put it over the top of it so you can't see it. In many ways, that's the idea of forbear, is that you just deal with it. You overlook, you forgive when you're wrong. Listen, people in church are going to hurt you. People in this church are going to hurt you. And if you want to contribute to a church split, here's what you do. Refuse to let it go. If you want to contribute to a church split, when somebody wrongs you, hold on tight. If you want to contribute to a church split, when someone does something you don't like, talk to other people about it. No, really, I'm giving you a manual on contributing to a church split tonight. Someone does something wrong, rather than dealing with them about it, go talk to other people. One person over here, one person over here, one person over here. And you say, well, I wouldn't do that, but it happens all the time. You know, let it drive a wedge in your relationship. And then watch how it impacts the health of a church. You have to be able to cover when you're wronged. This is just the, I mean, we're talking about basic Christian maturity. And it's not ever easy, but it is possible. If it wasn't possible, Paul wouldn't say do this. But he says it is possible to forbear one another in love. And listen, I don't know a lot about makeup. And you say, okay, that was a weird transition. I don't know a lot about makeup. But I do have five women in my home. And our dog is also female. So (laughs) got a lot of females in our home. I don't know a lot about makeup, but one thing I do know is I know what concealer is. You know, concealer covers the blemishes. Not that you have any, sweetie. <laughs> she, she doesn't need it. It covers the blemishes. Forbearance means we hide other people's blemishes. That we're willing to, to use concealer. And when someone says something harmful or hurtful that you Forgive, it's concealer. And that you don't have to require revenge. You don't have to require justice. You don't have to get back at them by letting other people know. No, you don't have to pray for something bad to happen to them. No, concealer is willing to hide the blemishes. You don't have to tell everybody what they did. Yet you can cover it up and you can make sure it goes no further than you. That's mature biblical church membership, folks. Unfortunately, we're better at using highlighters than concealers. And I don't know a lot about highlighters either, or highlighting. But I know a highlighter is to enhance or bring something out. The concealer is willing to cover. And folks, we've got to be careful. If we want to be a biblical church, 
that's marked by love. That we start using concealers more than we use highlighters. Because I don't know about you, I mean, and I don't, I've got more tonight, but I, I don't know about you, but I want Eastside to be a God-glorifying New Testament church. That makes as big a difference and as great as it, of an impact as it possibly can in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. But one thing I know is this. If we are going to be that kind of church, it requires unity. And if we are going to have unity, then we need to get a lot better at using concealers. And stop using the highlighters. Now, we're not willing to just kind of throw it out there when someone does something we don't like. No, it is possible to walk away. It is possible to hold your tongue. Am I saying that what they're doing is right? No. I'm saying you don't have control over what they do, but you do have control over your response. And if you want a church that glorifies God and meets all these qualifications, this high doctrine, this high calling, that we're walking worthy of the calling that God has called us to, that we need to, as a church, get better at using concealers and less adept at using highlighters. Because listen, we're all, none of us are perfect. See, here's the truth. If you go down to the end of this chapter Look what it says in verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. Even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You know the greatest motivation that you have. To love others is because you've been loved by somebody that knows you the best but loves you the most. If we want a church that is able to move forward and glorify God and, and answer the high calling that we have, then it starts, unity starts with love. And love makes those hard choices every day to have the mind of Christ, to be humble, to show love, to not to, to avoid strife. Uh, to not seek a position, to be willing to serve, to be willing to go unrecognized, to be willing to lay aside freedoms and rights for the good of somebody else. Amen. Listen, we, our theme this year is Love Works, and there's a lot of things about Love Works in our community you know, that we've tried to do and we'll keep trying to do through the fall. We're going to ramp that up again. But listen, I don't want, it's not about just loving our community if, they want, if we want people to look at Eastside and say there's something different about that place, then they have to see that our love for each other is genuine and different than what they're going to see anywhere else. So tonight, I just want you to, to think about how you express love toward the people in this church family. And I'm not even doing this tonight because there's an issue. I'm not doing this tonight because we have a need to cover this. I'm doing this tonight so that we can prevent becoming a church that people drive by and say, hey, that, that building, that used to be Eastside Baptist Church. That used to be a strong church. They used to have, man, they used to have Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night services. 
They used to have a good music. They used to have a strong youth group. Somebody says, okay, well, what happened? Well, they stopped loving each other. And they stopped striving for unity. And they stopped um, forgiving when the wrongs were coming. And they started using highlighters more than they were able to use concealers. Listen, I don't want, I don't ever want to be, I don't want to be part of that, of the reason that people say that about Eastside Baptist Church. I mean, as long as I'm part, and I think you'd say the same, as long as you're part of it, I think we're all on the same page to say, we want this church to be all God wants it to be. In order to do that, we have to have unity. And in order to have unity, then we have to forbear, forbear one another in love. It's going to take a fight sometimes, not with each other. No, it's going to take the choice to fight for the things that matter more than the things that bother you. I think we're all called to that tonight maybe. We just need to evaluate this kind of a family talk here tonight. We're, I'm not dealing with an issue. I'm just saying if we want to prevent ourselves from being the kind of church that people look at and say it used to be a church... These are the kind of messages that we need to hear. We're going to choose to have the mind of Christ. We're going to choose to have love. And we're going to choose to fight for the important things instead of fighting over the unimportant things. Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Let's just do business with God tonight. And listen, if nothing else, maybe we just need to ask God to help us to love in a way that pleases him so that we aren't the problem And rather than contributing to a church that is in division, let's decide tonight we are going to contribute to a church that loves. We want this church to be all that it needs to be. And I think unity is the key, but the key to unity is love. How are you doing at loving those in your church family? In the way that you speak to or in the way that you speak about, in your responses when things don't go your way, in the way that that you have a spirit towards certain people, maybe you've got a preconceived idea. No, let's erase all those things. Let's have the mind of Christ. How would Jesus deal with people in those situations? I think that is the standard toward which we should all strive to attain as we seek to be a biblical New Testament church.